Well, good morning, church. I got to tell you, first service, I got up and someone shouted, it's Scott, <laughs> and, it, and everybody applauded. <clears throat> so that's really a good service. <laughs> so I don't know about, oh, no, oh, no, no. <laughs> now, <laughs> that, that's just beneath, that's beneath you. Don't do that now. It means nothing to me now. I don't, I don't know about you. I, I'm so tired this morning. I was up late watching the Yankee Red Sox game last night. I, <clears throat> I, just, I just woke up this morning happy to come to church. Um, hey, a couple of things for you real quickly. Uh, this past week, our students returned from life. Now, if you're thinking, well, life happens every day, it does. But if you've been a part of our church, you know that every three years we have a conference called Life Conference where we take our students. Uh, it's uh, five, six, seven thousand, depending on the year. Our students gather together. Our, our, our group just came back from life this past week. And thank you uh, for giving and supporting. Uh, you know, virtually for three years, the fundraisers they do along the way is getting ready for the three years out. So, so in the next couple of weeks, we're going to show you some videos. My hope is to have Pastor Russ and uh, be able to speak and get some kids and students to hear their stories and just know what you've been a part of. Uh, they're, they're probably still sleeping. I see Russ woke up this morning. Uh, <clears throat> you know, one, one of our staff said, you know, I don't know how people sleep. Their last event's at, new, at midnight and the first event's at seven. You know, so how do they sleep? That's the beauty of it. You just keep them on the edge uh, for the week. But thanks for being a part of that. And we're going to get you more information just so you can see the result of what you have been a part of. The other thing I just want to say, I want to thank all of our volunteers in the church. You know, I'm not going to have you stand, but there's so many of you serve in different places. I forget about it until I like, walk in this morning and I come, I get here Sunday mornings about 7.30ish. By the time I get here, you know, worship team is here, the tech crew, all the people that are working in different places, they're all in place. But then I look across the lobby and coffee pots are being filled and people are working the information desk. Cones are out front. There's cushions on the bed. You know, there's just these teams of people that do things. Now, here's what I know. I know, I know that we notice when there is no coffee. But I want you to know that we noticed when there is coffee and when there is a cushion and all of those things. And that doesn't happen by accident. And it's not just Sunday morning. So many of you find places to serve. And it's just my, just I want to say, it makes a difference in the body of Christ. Last thing, um, block party. You saw a little slide pre-service about uh, the block party happening August 13th. It happens at our Burlington campus. And we need volunteers. Some, we need some things donated as well. But we really need volunteers. You know what block party is? It's our way of, of stepping into and reaching into the city of Burlington uh, and meeting a need. I mean, literally, we supply haircuts. Um, you know, people, the kids come and get ready for school. They can come get a haircut. We give them school supplies, backpacks, those kind of things. And it's all volunteer heavy, meaning it's you just need massive numbers of people for the numbers of families that come. And they come. We, they go, we go through everything that we gather, every backpack, everything we go through. Because the people from the North End, they come. They are thrilled about the day. So go to church center. You can see the different volunteers, people to give haircuts. But I just would just say, if you've never given a haircut before, <laughs> maybe don't volunteer for that. Just, I'm just saying. Uh, we have other things for you, but if you can participate, it makes a difference. This morning, we're going to continue talking about the church. 
We've been in our series in the church. We've got a couple more weeks and we'll wrap up. We're talking about the church, where it came from, how it came to be. So many people think of a church as a building, but it's so much more than the building. We've been talking about all of that in these past couple weeks. And yet this morning, I'm taking a little different approach than we have in previous weeks. If you've been here, typically we have a text and we begin walking through the text. We read the story, then I begin to walk through the text and under, you know, unpack it and all those kind of things. But our text this morning is actually really, really short. It's really small. And what I'm going to do this morning, instead of walking through a text, there's actually just one word I want to talk about. I'm going to talk about one word and try to help us get what it means and understand it. So we'll get there in a moment or two. Now, I'm a part of a family. Um, you're a part of a family. I think you get that idea that, you know, we all have a family line and a family tree. I grew up in, in Apple Lake in New York as part of the Slocum family. And you are a part of a family. Now, please know right up front, I get the fact that it might not be a great family. You might have some pain in that family background. For some of us, we talk about family and it's all with joy and excitement. Others of us, we talk about family and it's severe pain and memories maybe you don't like. I got it. Not perfect families, maybe not a loving family. Maybe, in fact, you're a part of a family, not a birth family, but adopted into the family. The point of it is you get the idea of family and that when you're in a family, there are different expectations of family members. There's responsibilities of family members. We have jobs and chores, those kind of things. We have expectations to love or to support, uh, good attitudes, those kind of things. We have shared experience. We have the kind of things that happen in our lives that, that happens in the context of family. We have the stories that we like to tell or remember. I'll give you a story, I have not only a story, but again, there's an expectation. So this goes years back. Uh, Adam was pretty young, I think probably five or six years old, our son Adam. And he never really was crazy about school. I mean, hated it, hated going to school. But he, you know, he went. But I tried to do things long way, make it a little easier. So we dropped his sisters off for class, you know, school early. And he and I would go to McDonald's drive-through, you know, little, little McDonald's, you know, start the day. And it was one of those days where we had done that and we had gone through McDonald's. We're on Pearl Street and we're sitting at a traffic light. We had a minivan back then. And a minivan, this particular minivan, you know, had a lot on it and it had two sliding doors. They weren't automatic, but two sliding doors, so one on each side. I'm at the traffic light and I, rec- I realized that the sliding door on my side, the driver's side behind me is open, not closed. And he's strapped in in the passenger seat in the back. And so it's a red light. So we got, I got time. So I, I reach back and you know how with headrest and tight thing, I can, I can barely fit my arm through there and I'm all pinched to try to reach the door, see if I can pull it. It won't pull. It's latched enough that you can't just pull it close. So I have to push the button and push it back a couple of inches and then pull. So, I mean, I'm twisted as much as I can because my arm, you know, get, I got it. I push it back and I pull as hard as I can. I can't get my hand out in time and I slam the door on my thumb. Now, please know, I don't just slam it on my thumb. My thumb is caught in the door. So it's slammed in the door and it's stuck in the door. And it hurts. And I'm driving the car on Pearl Street. And I'm stuck back this. I'm pinned back here. And so I start just wailing. It's like, oh, God, oh, you got to be kidding me. Oh, 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 oh. I mean, and, and poor Adam, you know, he's back there watching this show and of course the light turns green so I'm I literally I pinned it's like and so I have the brains enough to go enough far enough to get to all I just get off first parking I come to I pull I put the thing in park and I'm just and I mean I mean I'm in misery I'm like Adam, Adam 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 listen 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 to daddy listen to daddy 
unbuckle, you can unbuckle, unbuckle and push the button, push the button. And it's kind of like the button on the handle, yeah, the button on the handle, push the button on the handle. And so he does, and he's just nothing calm. I mean, I'm shouting, screaming, I'm in misery. He's just like, he goes over and pushes the button. And of course, when he does, you got to pull the handle, pulls the handle and just, and, and I mean, my hand is already just purple and huge. It's throbbing, you know. I get out of the car, I shut the door. He gets back in the seat and I'm, you know, I'm outside the car, you know, I'm like, duh. I get back in the car and I'm just sitting there. I'm just beside myself. It's like, duh. And I look in the mirror. And here's Adam sitting in his back in his seat, all buckled up. I'm thinking, he's crying. Then it dawns on me, he's not crying. I go, Adam. I know he can hear me, even though he'll look at me. I go, Adam, you laughing at me? Adam, are you laughing at me? Okay, in the family, you don't laugh at your dad in pain. They've been laughing their whole life, I got to tell you, because whatever. So my point is this. you got stories like that, experiences, right? Expectations, expectations. You don't laugh at your parents when they're in pain. But you get it. Now, my point is this. I give you that just to say this. You all get what it means to be part of a family. That, you know, good or bad, in the family, there's a sense of family. There's expectations, all those pieces, the stories, the shared everything. Now, we get that. Now, make this transition with me. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, guess what the Bible says? That you are brought into a family. All through the Bible, it talks about the fact that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you enter into this family. You become sons and daughters of a living God. You're part of the family of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and are also members of the household. Which means, if you look at the translation, which means you've got the family name. You're part of the family. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Catch that. God said this, you know what? It would be my good pleasure and my joy to have you be in my family. And by his pleasure, he adopts you in. By his pleasure, solely on his goodwill and happiness, the fact, I want you as mine. He adopts us into his family. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And catch that. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And those of you who've been in the church know that the best translation we have for the word Abba is Daddy. That's the best translation we have. He said, listen, it is my goodwill, it's my pleasure, it's my joy that I want to bring you into my family and I want you to have the joy of being able to say, that's my dad, Daddy. That's the picture. 
And I want you to get that picture. That's what it means. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are in this incredible family of God. Now, as I said, family members have responsibilities. They have things they share together. And one of the number one responsibilities, one of the first responsibilities that we have in the family of God is to learn to love people in the family of God. One of the first responsibilities we have as family members is learn learn to love one another. That's the task. That's the job. That's the responsibility. Jesus looked at his disciples in John chapter 13, verse 34. Here's what he said. A new command I give you, love one another, period. As I have loved you, you must love one another. How do you know if you're in the family of God? Question, do you love people? Not hard. Do you love people? So you find yourself going, well, not so sure. I have to, I'm not going to say that if you're not so sure, you're out of the family. But I would say to this, if one of the hallmarks of a follower of Jesus is that you love people, and specifically you love people, other family members of the family, if you can't look at your life and say, yeah, my, my life is marked by my love for people, I would say this to you, you really ought to reconsider how you're, how you're living your life. Because if you're going to take the title Christian, means something. If I'm a follower of Jesus, it means something. And so if I would say, do you love people? And you kind of go, yeah, not so much. I would say, well, you yeah, really ought to take a pretty hard look at that then because somehow you, something's not right there. That's the picture that we have. Let me give you three reasons why God wants you to love people. Three reasons why he wants us to love one another. First reason is this. When we love people, we look most like him. God wants you to love one another because when you love people, you look most like God. The Bible is really clear. God is love. It doesn't say that God acts loving. It doesn't say that God looks like love. It doesn't say that God tries to be loving. It says he is love. He's the embodiment of love, which means when you love other people, you look most like your dad. That's what it means. So he loves the fact that his people will love one another because you look like him. You represent him well when you love other people. Second reason God wants us to love one another is that God likes it when his kids get along together. God loves when his kids get along. Parents, you got this? You you, you, you kind of resonate here in this one? When the kids aren't getting along, drives you nuts. When you watch them get along, you wonder what's wrong. Because it's only a matter of time, right? That's how we think. God loves when his kids love to be together and play together. Third reason why God wants us to love one another is it's practice for eternity. You know, this time on earth is really short compared to eternity. And God says, listen, I'm going to tell you something. On this earth, I want you to love two things. Remember, he said, love God and love people. Think about this. Who's going to be in eternity? God and people. So you learn it here, you get it right there. Now, with each of these concepts, loving God and loving people, there's a word the Bible has, a set word that we kind of correlate with these, these concepts. So when it comes to loving God, the word is worship. Worship embodies all that comes into loving God. We worship God because we love him. We demonstrate our love through worship. So that's the embodiment of loving God and the word worship. 
The word, the word we're going to look at today is this next word, and that is the word that embodies the idea of loving people, and specifically in the family of God, it's called fellowship. We're going to spend our whole time talking about this word fellowship, and here's our text, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Let's stop and pray. Father, we need you to speak to us in this moment, not me. I get the fact that I'm the pastor, I get the fact that I'm the preacher, I get the fact that I'll be walking through the word together, but we need to hear from you. And as I've said countless times, I don't get up here to preach, we don't assemble ourselves here for information, but we ask today for transformation. We ask that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives today in such a way that it would change us. And I don't say that about anyone else, I ask you to change me. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's something that you need to capture here as we, if we begin this storyline this morning, right from the very beginning, and it's about the beginning of the church. Now, we've talked about the beginning of the church. I'll just hit a couple of statements, but there's a key thing I need you to catch and see. So, on day one, we have uh, Jesus getting ready to ascend into heaven. Remember, 100, 100 to 125 followers of Jesus at that point, standing on a hillside, and Jesus says to them, don't you leave Jerusalem. You stay here and you wait. What are they waiting for? He said, you're going to wait because I'm going to send you a gift. What's the gift? The Holy Spirit. You stay here, and my Father is going to send you the gift of the Holy Spirit, which will empower your lives. And so they hang out together for about two weeks, and the Holy Spirit comes. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And of course, the Holy Spirit comes. They're empowered. It's incredible. All of a sudden, they find each, each one of them speaking in a different language. All these people from different countries are hearing the story of Jesus told in the language you understand. These guys that couldn't speak in any other tongue other than their, their own Galilean tongue, all of a sudden, they're speaking in different languages. People are coming to Jesus. And remember the story at the end of day one, the beginning of the church, at the end of day one, 3,000 people say yes to Jesus Christ. It's an incredible moment. I mean, 3,000 people say yes to Jesus Christ, and the Bible tells us 3,000 of them believe and are baptized. That's all on day one. Now, here's the part where you have to stick with me for a moment and make sure you get this good picture in your head. So 3,000 people come to Jesus. But remember, there is no model to follow. 3,000 people say yes to Jesus. Now, just so you know, baptizing 3,000 people is going to take you hours upon hours upon hours upon hours. So here's how it goes. They say yes, they get baptized, it's sundown, now what? Go home. There's no model to follow. There is no model of the church. There's no small group, group discipleship plan. There's no small groups from the join and part, be a part of. There's no men's groups, no women's group. There's no church planting handbook. There's no handbook on how to do church. There's no worship teams. There's no children's ministry. No Sunday services, no youth group, no women's ministries, no men's breakfast. Saved, baptized, sundown. Go home. So you come to Jesus. You have this moment. You get baptized. You come out of the water. Man, what, and fantastic. And the only people you know are these people who have had this experience with Jesus a little longer than you and the Holy Spirit a day before you. And you look at them and you go, this is fantastic. What's next? Go home. Have a good night. Have dinner. 
What are we doing tomorrow? There's no tomorrow. I mean, we gather together for church. There's no church. See, this is the part you have to get. There is no plan. There's nothing else. This is the moment. They come to Jesus, and it's sundown, and it's time to go home. There is nothing else. You say, why is that important? Because you are actually reading the history of what took place. I mean, when you read the account of how the church started and you see how they act and you see how they became and what, what the, how, um, uh, how they begin to interact with one another, what you're getting is you're not getting anyone get, coaching them. You're not getting a playbook. You're not getting the, you know, first, uh, first page, chapter three, paragraph, this is how, how you do church. It's just happening very generically. It's very happening grassroots. This is just the birth of the church. So if you want to know what the church ought to look like, just look at them because you have recorded exactly the things that are critical and important. Now, with that in mind, that we have this recorded history, which is simply how it all began to come to be and, and kind of work its way out, it has to strike you that the one thing that they had was they had in common this idea of a shared life. They had the shared life. You know, it is one of, if not the most distinctive marks of the church is that Christians, these first century Christians, they had fellowship. They had this shared life together. And in fact, you have to look at it and think about this. I grew up in church that had a fellowship hall. Actually, the fellowship hall was the basement of the church. And it was the place where we served uh, fruit punch and cookies. It was the fellowship hall. This church for years had a fellowship hall. We call it the video cafe. And think about this word fellowship. That is a word that no one, no, no average person in the world is using the word fellowship, right? I mean, you're at work and one of your coworkers says, hey, we're going out to the bar tonight. We're going to fellowship together. You want to come? You hear that very often? We're going to, what? I mean, no one uses the word except for us, fellowship together. If you ask a non-church friend to say, hey, come to church, meet me in the fellowship hall. Here's what they would think. Well, somebody with money, last name fellowship, must have given the money for the hall. Because <laughs> they named it after them. You know, Slocum Hall, fellowship hall. It's not a word that the world uses. It's not the word that the, that, that the world knows. But I would also suggest it's not a word that we know. I can tell you right now, I can pull us all aside individually and say, hey, just write down a definition for fellowship, and you will struggle to write that out. It'll be uh, cake, ice cream, dialogue, you know, fellowship. Yeah, what's that mean? Just what I said it meant. It means fellowship. In 1945, in a Nazi concentration camp in Flossenburg, Germany, a pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed. He was executed by special order of Heinrich Himmler, who was uh, Hitler's personal executioner. He oversaw all the major execution. On his direct order, Bonhoeffer was executed. He had been arrested two years earlier, and during those two years, he was moved from camp to camp to camp in complete isolation with the intent of getting him isolated from anyone that would know him or that he would know. Completely isolated. Years before he was imprisoned and then executed, he wrote a book called Life Together. And here's a quote from that book. This is one of his most cherished things he describes in life. 
He says, the physical presence of other Christians is a source, a source of inc- incomparable joy and strength to the believer, having other Christians in my life. He said, a physical sign of the gracious presence of the triune God. How inexhaustible are the riches that open up for those who by God's will are privileged to live in the daily fellowship of life with other Christians. Let him who has such a privilege thank God on his knees and declare it is grace and nothing but grace that we are allowed to live in fellowship with Christian brothers. Now, I ask you this question. Do you think that's what he meant when he said, privilege to have punch and cookies with other Christians? You think that's what he meant when he used the word fellowship? You think he meant this, listen, for those who have the privilege of having punch and cookies with other Christians, get on your knees and declare that it's grace and nothing but grace. You think that's what he meant? You know better, right? You know it's not what he meant. Now, this word fellowship comes from the word koinonia. Koinonia is a word used about 30 times in the New Testament, and koinonia means fellowship. (laughs) And fellowship means shared life. That word koinonia means shared life, shared partnership, linked together, shared cause, shared life. Now, when we study the book of Acts and we see the beginning of the first church, we quickly see that the church life in Acts was intensely relational. Now, listen to this next statement. Now, get this. When you study the beginning of the church, it was intensely relationship. And notice the fact it's a big church. 3,000 one day, 5,000 within a couple of days. We're thinking within a month's time, we're thinking maybe 10, up to 10,000 people. That's a huge church. That's a huge church by our standards today. That is the mega church of all mega churches in that time frame. So we got this huge church and it's intensely relational. If you ever hear someone say, well, I'm not really crazy about a big church because it's hard to be relational in a big church. Just so you know, I think it's them. It's not the church. Because you have this massive church, and it's intensely relational. It means the people were intensely relational. Now, intensely relational is not a spectator event. It's engagement. You see, God never intended that a person would come to Jesus Christ, would say yes, and then wander around on their own discretion. God never intended that a person would come and give their life to Jesus and then say, okay, good, thank you, I'm good from here. Well, why don't you come join us? No, I'm good. I'm going to go solo on this. You know, I kind of float better by myself. That was not God's intent. So the question then is this. When we compare the church today to the first century church, are they the same? And your answer would probably be no. But if you want to be a little gracious, you could say, well, maybe not completely. Or even so, we'd say, well, no, but I think it wants to be the same, but we're not quite. Now, part of the struggle comes into a new culture that we live in because we have seen it change. And part of the problem we have today is that there's been a huge cultural shift, not in a year or not 10 years ago, but over time, there's been a huge cultural shift to personal, basically, individualism. Let me explain it all so you got to stick with me here for a couple minutes. Personal individualism. You see, everything in this world today is marketed to you having it the way that you want it, Right? To me, the way I want it. Have it your way. Now, that goes back a long time. The Burger King. Burger King said, have it your way. 
their whole claim to fame. When Burger King, Burger King first began, they were in direct competition to who? McDonald's. McDonald's, you don't get it your way. It just comes off the grill the way that it comes. Burger King's whole deal was what? But you get it the way you want it. And just so you know, just about everything in the world today that's marketed is marketed to you or to me having it the way that I want things. Don't settle for doing it the way other people want it. You do it the way you want it to be done. And pretty soon that also filters into the church. And so, you know, kind of subtly, the church becomes just one more place where it's supposed to give me what I want. My private, my personal indulgence for me. In 1980... In 1980, a Jewish humanist wrote a book. His name was Neil Postman, and he wrote this book. It said, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Now, again, this is 1980. Some of you, not alive, 1980. Others of you barely remember 1980. Others of you remember all too well. 1980, he wrote this. He said, Serious thinking is becoming replaced by entertainment. Specifically, our minds are being crippled by the crippling power of television. Now, in 1980, what he wrote was that people's ability to think was being replaced, being crippled by the power of television. 1980 was all about television. Now, that was before satellite TV. That was just the very, very beginning of cable TV. Uh, it was pre-cell phones, pre-smartphones, pre-computer, internet, all of those things. So what would he say today? If it's thought in 1980 was that we are, just, we are bombarded by entertainment because of television, what on earth would he be thinking today? Let me finish the quote for you. He said this, we humans subsist in a bizarre non-world that involves no risk to themselves, no giving of themselves to others, no true vulnerability, no commitment, no sacrifice, no real meaning, and no value. Now, I laugh at the fact that he's making those statements about television, just about TV. Now, the one virtue TV has, let's just be honest, the one virtue TV had back in 1980 and along the way, the one virtue TV carried with it was it was a group sport. I mean, TV was a group thing. I mean, think about it. Back in 1980, I mean, people couldn't afford to put a TV in every room. People couldn't afford to have every person in the house having a TV. Unlike today, we can pretty much everyone have our own TV, but not back then. Back then, the TV, when, when dad, mom got a brand new TV, and it was bigger than 12-inch black and white, it was in the living room, and that was the gathering place. So the one virtue TV had, it was the gathering room. It was the gathering place. Come watch the game. Let's do this together. So no average person would think about having multiple TVs, and anything bigger than 12-inch was really just more than you needed. 12-inch TV. Now catch this. In 1980, he could not have possibly imagined the screens of televisions going from 12 or 20 inches to 40 and 50 and 80 and 90 inches. Do you know today that you can get a TV screen that's 292 inches? 292 inches. That's 24.5 24 feet. Now, just so you know, a lot of you are going, that's horrible, that's horrible. And I go, yeah, that's horrible. <laughs> I mean, that's just horrible. You know, a whole wall of television. You can get it. Hundreds of thousands of dollars, but you can get it. Now, think about this. Really, listen. His thought was that TVs were robbing us of being relational. 
And do you know what else that he could not have possibly imagined beyond these huge screens? He could not have imagined these tiny screens. He couldn't have possibly imagined. See, he couldn't have thought about 90-inch television, but he, I guarantee in 1980, he could not have imagined that we would all have a 5-inch by 2-inch screen. And for some of us, inch by inch on our iPhone watch. I'm not knocking it. I like one. Um, so don't be offended. He couldn't imagine that. He could not have possibly imagined, catch this, and, and it was, was, I mean, just point blank. He couldn't have imagined that in my back pocket, I got my phone, I've got a radio, I've got every, every access to every record album, every album ever created or done, every newspaper, every magazine, every computer, movie theater, I have it all with me all the time. He couldn't have imagined that. Now, just hear me out. You've got you to stick with me here. With no fault, with no blame, without any negative intention, this new norm for our culture today are, is a norm of people who create their own virtual world. That includes me. The norm for us today is that we all get to create our own virtual world. I get to create the world according to Scott. It's a wonderful world. I wish you could all live in my world. I wish you all would live in my world. The world according to Scott. Now, it happens in two ways. First of all, thanks to social media, we can create our own virtual self, right? You create your own virtual who you are. Interesting thing, 80% of the pictures that are out there on social media that people post, 80% of them have been doctored or filtered. What's that mean? It means I'm going to put the best face forward I can. And I can't remember the number, so I can't get it, but it was a huge number. It might have been bigger than 80, but a huge number of pictures that are basically at least 10 years younger than the person is currently. What does that mean? It means I, I want hair when I put that picture back on. I don't want gray hair. I want, you know, the, that kind of thing. So we create this virtual picture of ourselves. We can project ourselves any way that we want to anyone we want, and we can do that while sitting in our kitchen. We create a digitized projection of our individual self-design. So there's the first part of my world I get to create. I get to create the person I always wanted to be. Second part of that is, is that we take the next step, we create the cyber us, but then second, thanks to the internet world we live, we live in, we can create the world, the, our self-created world where, where it's all according to me, where it's all according to Scott. I get to choose the news that I want to listen to. I get to choose the commentary I want that I agree with. I choose the music that I like. And not only do I choose the music that I like, I create my own playlist so that I can take the music that I like and I hear it and I hear only it and I hear it over and over and over again. Because it's my list. I get to choose it. We choose who our friends will be. We get to choose because the internet set up. I can choose the people that I let into my world. Not, not only that, I can choose what people even get to see my world. Not just into my world. I get to decide whether you can even look in my world or not. And today, I can be my, you can be my friend. And tomorrow, with a button, I can defriend you. Friends in, friends out. Friends in, friends out. So please know I'm creating the world according to Scott. It's a wonderful world. But here's Scott's problem. The world, according to Scott, hits a, sometimes it bangs its head on the wall when Scott decides to come to church. So what happens, I come to church, I so wait a minute, I may not be comfortable in church because first thing is, I might run into an enemy in church. I might run into someone I defriended in church. I mean, that's going to be a problem, like, oh dear, you know, I just hit the button on you the other day and here we are. I can come to church and you can play music not on my playlist. 
I can come to church and you might hear a sermon from the pastor who doesn't say exactly what I want to hear. Now, it doesn't happen when Scott's preaching, not, for, <clears throat> not in Scott's world. Uh, I love what Scott says, but I, you get it, right? Now, here's the problem. And again, we do this. I create my world. Listen, I won't take time to do it now, but I can just push two buttons and you will hear all the classic polkas because that's my playlist, my polkas. That's my world. So here's the problem. For all of us, including me, the risk is huge that my entitlement to create my own world begins to change my view of everything. And it begins to dominate my view of information, of experiences, of relationships, of truth, of accuracy, credibility, all of those things. And here's the key thing I hear. Here's the key point. And this culture today of self-created worlds is deadly to koinonia. It's deadly to the shared life of the body of Christ. You see, friends, the hallmark of the church has always been that there's this group of people that just share life together. And it's not vetted. Their coming together is not vetted by the friend list or the political agenda or vetted by the music, but there's a qualification for them coming together. And you know what it was? Follower of Jesus. That's the hallmark of the church. My father-in-law, who loved Jesus and is now enjoying eternity with Jesus, he, he and my mother-in-law, they worked in the church. They gave of themselves. They loved that church. He served in the church. I mean, he loved Jesus, and he was hardcore Republican. Hardcore Republican. I mean, he'd go to the Republican caucus in town, all of those things. His best friend in the church, equally committed, loved Jesus, served everywhere. There wasn't a place where Bob wouldn't be showing up to serve and love Jesus. And he was a hardcore Democrat. And guess what? And they loved the koinonia together. They loved the fellowship of the body of Christ together. You know why? Because their political agendas isn't what was driving them. Their musical taste isn't what was driving them. The culture around them isn't what was driving them. What was driving them? They both knew Jesus. And they loved him. And they loved the fellowship that came in the church, in the body of Christ. When COVID hit in, the year, in March 2000, I knew exactly where we were at. We were visiting my daughter who just had a baby. And of course, we were visiting her as COVID was hitting, but no one knew much about it, you know. So there's a new report every hour, it seemed right. And I can remember where I was. I was walking out on the front sidewalk when I talked to two of our elders who we were making, having to make decisions because the governor had just said, you can gather, but you can only have groups of, I think, 500 or less. And we're talking about, we had more than 500, what we we're going to do. You know, we're going back and forth. Do we meet? Do we not? We decided to meet, but we would be very careful about it. But within two weeks, I remember it well because I went into the house, talked to my wife and said, we got to go home. I mean, this thing's happening, and I can't, I can't leave the church from away. I got to be home. And so we packed up, and we came back. And you remember, within two weeks, every church in the country, virtually every church in the country, went from meeting together to not meeting at all. I mean, the entire country shut down. Now, churches, of course, everything was shut down. Remember it well, right? So here's the deal. Listen to this. So within two weeks' time, we began streaming Sunday morning service. You might remember it. It was, it was actually a good time. 
I mean, we had, we had thousands of people online. We had people, notes every week thanking us for what we were doing and, and bringing the body together in a time of fear, bringing the body together. I'd go to the office by myself, of course. We couldn't be, make contact, and I would study and preach, and I'd record in my office. Cam would bring a camera, set the camera up in my office before I got there because we didn't want to cross, you know, contaminate each other. He'd come and set the camera up. I'd come and push the button and record it. I'd let him a note that, that it was ready and I was gone. And he'd come in, get the camera, set it up. He would, take vid- he would take the old videos of our Sunday morning services and edit out the worship parts so he could put the worship on so it looked like live worship with that week's message. Remember it? And just so you know, every church, just about every church started streaming their services. And it was a life-saving moment for the church. Very sincerely, it saved countless churches from ending and just being no more but hear this but everything we did digitally whether it was sunday morning small groups bible studies they were the only option we had catch this to keep koinonia going but it was never designed to be the substitute for koinonia it was never designed to be the substitute for the shared life together You see, koinonia, this fellowship, is not nurtured and it's not grown through digital means. I can't tell you how many people through the, through the past months now, even within weeks ago, coming back to church who have not been in church in a service or been in a small group or been someplace in person because they've watched online. I can't tell you how many people will come up to me with tears and say, I'm back for the first time. I got to tell you, I didn't know what I was missing. I mean, it, it's really good online. It's really powerful, but there's something different here. You know what the difference is? The Spirit of God is present because the body of Christ has come together in fellowship and in koinonia. They were missing the koinonia moment, the shared life, the power of the presence of God who is present when the church body gathers together to worship and to serve. Now, make sure you hear this. I am not against streaming in any way our services. I'm not against the internet. I'm not against smartphones. Man, I'm on this thing all the time, researching and doing things and checking out the news and listening to the other baseball team. You know, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) All the time. I'm not against them. But hear these next two statements. Statement one, all of these technologies are fantastic in helping personal relationships to grow stronger. Here's a second statement. However, all of these technologies are even more powerful in keeping personal relationships from being personal. So you have to be very careful because part of the struggle the church is facing today, it's never faced before. It's never had this individualism so easy in people's hands for them to create a world where they don't need the shared life together. The church is to be the place of fellowship together. Aristides was an ancient historian. He was asked to look at this new church. It's about a year 100, 117. He was asked to look at the, the church, the Christians, and, and help figure out why they existed, why they kept going, why they were growing like they were, why they were so strong. Don't forget, Christianity took over virtually the world in 300 years. This is about the year 100, and he's asked to look at it and figure out what is going on with the church. Here's what he wrote. He said, speaking of Christians, they abstain from all impurity in the hope of the recompense that is to come in another world. Meaning this, they believe in eternity, and they believe that what you do today matters then. 
he said that he, he then said this, when there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and if they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy man with necessary food. Catch that? They have very little and someone is hungry, so they fast for two or three days and give the food they would eat to the person in need. Such is the law of the Christians, and such is their conduct. And then he said this, they walk in all humility and kindness. They love one another. Huh. They studied the church. And he said, the reason why you can't stop it and the reason why it's growing strong is because they love one another and it comes out in how they live. That's what he saw. So let me give you, let me wrap up. Let me give you a couple things to think about and to apply in your life as it comes to this word fellowship. I'm gonna list for you five, they're pretty quick, so don't get too worked up on time. Five bullets what five levels of fellowship and what I would ask you to do is I would challenge you to honestly look at your life and say well how does my life match up with these levels of fellowship that we see in the New Testament church five levels here they go level number one the fellowship of sharing together the first level of fellowship is the fellowship of sharing you see, all, all love starts with sharing. All relationships start with sharing. Any growing relationship includes sharing and starts there. Sharing a conversation, sharing a look, sharing laughter, sharing meals, sharing ideas, experiences, dreams, whatever it might be. You see, the more you share with someone, the more that you begin to grow with them and to love them. Our text in, our, our text in Acts says this, that they shared everything in common with each other they shared it all so here's the question for you number one so how you doing with your sharing who are the people that are part of your life within the church that you regularly share with that you built relationships with that you know do you, that you regularly spend time with in, in the church body in the ministry of the church where you can say yeah i got those people that i share with and they share with me fellowship of sharing second one the fellowship of belonging the second level of fellowship is the fellowship of belonging Belonging in any relationship doesn't happen without commitment. Please know nobody stumbles into belonging. Nobody goes, look, one day I just belong. No, there's a process. You commit yourself along the way, and as you commit, you find yourself in that place of belonging. Sometimes I'll hear people say things like this. Well, I love Jesus. I just don't want to get involved in the church. Now, I really love Jesus, but, you know, not so much the church. And you kind of go, really? Did you hear yourself? Well, I love Jesus, but I really don't want to be involved in the church that Jesus started. Jesus said that if you're a follower of me, you're a part of the church. Well, I love Jesus. I just don't want to be a part of the church. I mean, that's like saying this, man, I want to play football, but I refuse to play on any team. Go home today and get a football and go play football by yourself. It's a fun time, let me tell you. But that's the same thing. I want to be a soldier, but I refuse to be in any army, any, any platoon. That's a pretty lonely life right there, I got to tell you. I want to play the tuba, but I refuse to play with any orchestra, band, or group. Huh. When's, um, 
When's the last time you've been, ever been to any main venue to hear a solo tuba artist? When's the last time you paid 150 bucks for tuba tickets? Right? I want to be a bee, but I refuse to be a part of any hive. You're a dead bee. Because you don't live outside the hive. You don't live outside the environment. See, you, when people say, well, I love Jesus, I just want to be a part of the church, you kind of go, man, do you hear yourself? So here's the question. Are you part of a small group? Part of a men's group? Women's group? Bible study? Celebrate recovery? You see, belonging never happens without commitment to say, I'm going to do that. Third thing, third level fellowship is a fellowship of serving. Man, I'll tell you what, you know you are in fellowship when you find yourself in that place of serving. And now by serving, I'm not talking about serving out of obligation. I'm not talking about me getting up here and giving you a guilt trip where you get all done and you go, oh, I better go serve or he's, I'm going to go to hell. I mean, sure, who wouldn't serve if you're going to go to hell? But I'm not talking about that kind of obligation. I'm talking about that kind of service that comes with joy. You see, when you serve in the church, in some place of ministry, there is a sense of belonging and of joy that is indescribable. You want to know what joy looks like? Look at this picture. Right there is what joy looks like. You say, well, who is that? Uh, well, number one, there is just a small group of our men in our men's ministry who got together on a Saturday to go paint someone's deck in the church. The deck needed to be painted. Now, I'll tell you right now, they don't look like much. I know. They were, a couple of them were in the first service. They were very offended. They don't look like much, but I got to tell you, they are happy. You know why? Because that's what joy does when you serve. Joy makes you happy. It changes you. And so that level of fellowship of serving. So I looked at, I looked at you and said, okay, so where are you at? Where are you at in your serving? The fellowship of serving, ushering, children's ministry, students, facilities, welcoming, uh, greeters, worship and arts. Pick your place. There's a fellowship that happens in serving that brings a joy you can't imagine. Fourth level of fellowship is the fellowship of suffering. Now, this is a hard one because none of us want this one. And yet, this is one of the most profound. The fellowship of suffering. You see, love grows deeper when we suffer together. When you share a hurt, a heartache with someone, when you share a hurt, when you share a burden, when you share pain, and when you are close enough with them that when you're hurting, you look at them and you know that they hurt with you. I got a handful of friends that I can call and say, I'm going through this, and, and immediately I know that they are so engaged that as I'm crying, they cry with me. People in your life, when you know you've got someone, when they call and they're in tears, you're in tears with them. The fellowship of suffering. Man, you get close. When you are with someone who is going through one of those, those brutal times and you walk it with them or you and they walk with you, man, you get close. It has been said that suffering together is humanizing. Catch that? Suffering is humanizing. The more we suffer together, the more human we become. I think, you know, that's probably true. Do you remember how unified we were right after 9-11? The whole country unified. Remember how unified we were right in those early days of COVID? There were no political parties. There were no agendas. There were no other countries. There was nothing. All it was was a bunch of grieving, hurting people together. 
That's how it goes. Suffering brings us together. So who have you developed relationships with where they will suffer with you and you would suffer with them? Let me give you the last one. The last one is the fellowship of giving, the fellowship of sacrifice. The fifth one is the fellowship of sacrifice. The Bible tells us that all those believers had everything in common. And in fact, what they did, they went and sold stuff so that they could give to the ministry of the church. Friends, when you give your money and your resources to God's church joyfully and with generosity, there's a fellowship that you know that's kind of just a, a unique moment of power. The story is told, now I can't verify it, but it's been told for, I mean, a long time and written down. A traveling evangelist was traveling and had special meetings and uh, had people come to Jesus. He went down to the river and was baptizing people. One guy came into the river holding his wallet and he said, brother, you might want to hand your wallet to someone. And the guy said, nope, I'm holding it myself. And he took him in and baptized him. And as soon as he took him under the water, the guy's arms stood straight up and the wallet never got wet. Pastor said, what's going on there? And he said these words. He said, you know, I gave Jesus my heart, but I'm not quite ready to give him my money yet. And I would say, whether that's true or not, I mean, it was recorded, but whether it's true or not, I would say I could see it because it's kind of where we live. Our resources are pretty tough to let go of. I mean, that's kind of where we were at. That heart piece with the money is one of the last things to go. Yet there's something so powerful in giving together. We took an offering for the Great Commission Fund, nearly $20,000. Something about giving together. Uh, Giving together, making things ministry happen together. In the next week or two, we're going to reinstitute taking an offering Sunday morning. Because one of the things that we're recognizing, not just here, but across the board, churches stopped it because of of COVID. But you know what we've realized is missing? The fellowship of giving together. Of recognizing that it's not ours, it's His. I'll tell you this, this final story. It fits in the same realm. And this is a, this is a documented, a true story. Um, his name is Sam Houston. And someday I'll tell you the whole story because it's quite fascinating. But Sam Houston is the guy that the city of Houston, Texas was named after. Sam Houston was a senator from Texas. He was, became governor of Texas. But get this, his nickname was the Big Drunk. The Big Drunk. This guy led a horrible, horrible horrible life. I mean, not only was his nickname the Big Drunk, but he fathered eight children from different women from the time he was 51 to the age of 68, fathered eight different women. And then he eventually married another woman, and she was a believer, and as a courtesy to her, he actually went to church with her on occasion. And on one of those occasions, Sam met Jesus and gave his life to Jesus Christ. It was such a huge moment. The day he was getting baptized, uh, three pastors joined together. The guy who was currently in the church and the previous pastors who all knew Sam and knew his background. They all gathered because this was quite the event for Sam to be getting baptized. And he walked into the water with his watch on and the pastor said to him, Sam, you might want to have somebody hold your watch. And so he handed off his timepiece. And as he's walking back in, they recognize he had his wallet with him still. And the pastor said, Sam, you might want to have some of your wallet as well. And Sam said this. He goes, nope, if there's one thing I know needs to be baptized, it's my wallet. Because he understood right even then that this all in means all in. The fellowship of giving, of sacrifice. The church is marked like no other group of people for its shared life together. 
And that word is fellowship. Here's our ending. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. Don't even read it, just listen. They spent their time in learning from the apostles, taking part in the fellowship and in sharing in the fellowship of meals and prayers. Many miracles and wonders were being done through the apostles and everyone was filled with awe. All the believers, they continued together in close fellowship and they shared their belongings with one another. They would sell their property and their possessions and they would distribute the money among all of the people according to whatever need they had. Day after day, they met as a group in the temple and they had their meals together in their homes, eating with glad and humble hearts, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all of the people. And every day, the Lord added to their group those who are being saved. Oh, that every one of those words a historian today would write down and say, let me tell you what I saw in Essex Lions Church. And may they write down those words. And because of our shared life together, may they record, and God was adding to their number every day. Here, North Avenue, your neighborhood, wherever it might be. Stan, let's pray. Lord Jesus, may those words, I mean, we just read history, the recorded history of that first church. Oh, how, how thrilling it would be that someone today would take an historical account and they would say those same words about us. May it be true of us. Amen. God bless you.